there's a lot of reasons that your book is not going to sell and it has nothing to do with how well it's written, how much merit it has in, you know, society or like literature. It really is about timing, some luck and the marketplace. Welcome to Page Count, presented by the Ohio Center for the Book at Cleveland Public Library. This podcast celebrates authors, illustrators, librarians, booksellers, literary advocates, and readers in and from the state of Ohio. I'm your host, Laura Maylene Walter, the Ohio Center for the Book Fellow and author of the novel Body of Stars. Today, we're joined by Aaron Hosier, a literary agent, the author of the memoir Don't Let Me Down, and a co-creator of the podcast Tell Me About Your Father. We'll be discussing publishing, agenting, writing, and podcasting, and we'll also provide feedback on three query letters from Ohio writers. Erin, welcome to the podcast, and thanks so much for being here. Hey, it's so great to be here. I'm really happy to be here as a guest. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, a break from being the host um, in the host shoes for the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have a lot I want to cover, but let's start quickly with your Ohio connection, which we always do here. Ohio is kind of the center of the universe for this podcast. (laughs) But you grew up in rural Northeast Ohio, which you document beautifully in your memoir. But then after living in New York for years, you have come back and now you're in Cleveland. So can you tell us a bit about the role Ohio has played in your life? And also, what is it like for you being back in the area now? Uh, I mean... Who would I be without Ohio? It's interesting. Like, I always was one of those kids who knew that they wanted to move to New York City. I sort of came of age in the 80s and 90s. And in the 80s, especially, we didn't have cable. And it was just like three TV channels. And everything seemed to be happening in the big town. So I knew I wanted to get there. And when I finally did, it was for an internship at Ms. Magazine, and the editor who called to interview me while I was still at Kent State was like, is this the right time to call? Are you in a different time zone? (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, Northeast Ohio, still the Eastern EST. So I, I learned pretty quickly that actually, when people found out I was from rural Ohio in New York City, I would get questions like, oh, are you, were you Amish? I mean, there's <laughs> truly, truly, I was like, I, I grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. So I got that okay. question all the time. Yeah, there's like a real glamour. And it's unusual to people in the cities, you know, the left coast and the right coast to encounter us. And of course, all the great writers and entertainment creators seem to be from the Midwest or the flyover states. So I'm very proud of it. It is great to be back. It's almost like I'm here for the first time, really, because being in New York in publishing and media for 23 years, it's so insular. And it just feels like, oh, nobody outside of this world could possibly understand how things work. And then I moved here during the pandemic. And one of the first connections I made was uh, Lori Kinser. Oh, yeah, Lori Kinser. Right? At the Cuyahoga Public Library, the um, Lynnhurst East Euclid branch, and more importantly, the Writers Center there. And she just opened up the world to me and started introducing me to people from New York that I hadn't known when I was in New York and are now in Cleveland. And just so many great things have happened since then. So I feel like I'm in exactly the right place at the right time in publishing. And my clients are excited, the writers that I work with who live all over the place, because now they'll have a liaison, you know, once we get back into, which we pretty much are, but touring around and sharing and reading and being part of the festivals and the workshops and the communities that we all rely on. Yeah. And I know here in Cleveland, you've participated in the incubator through Literary Cleveland and some other things. And so we're just really excited to have you here. Well, let's talk about your work as an agent a bit. You said you've been doing it for 23 years. So can you tell us a bit about your work and what kind of books do you represent or would like to represent? I sort of fell into book publishing. I loved 
reading magazines and reading books, and I was a pop culture aficionado. So when I got that first internship at a magazine, I just threw myself into that world of reading articles and seeking out writers and and reaching out to strangers and asking them about their lives. Or have you ever thought about writing a book? Or have you ever thought about writing um, an article for at the time where I was working? But then I got a job answering phones at the Gernert Company, which is another boutique literary agency in New York City. And at the time, it was just starting out, and it was four people. But through that job of answering the phone, I met so many people and so many writers and started learning the ropes of like a giant, we call it the slush pile of manuscripts that is just constantly on your boss's desk needs to be read, or at least the first page or so of every manuscript has to be read and rejected or ask for more. And so you learn that as an assistant really quickly, like what gets any reader to turn the page. And so it wasn't just about like, oh, I had all this experience as an editor or as an agent, because I had none of that. I was just a reader. So I was surprised by how much weight they gave my opinions. If I didn't think that it was worth reading another page, it doesn't matter who they were. You know, the busy agent boss was just like, okay, next. And so that's truly how it works. You know, now that I'm an agent myself, it is my job to position the books and write about them in a way that will be enticing to the editor who needs to read next, but also thinking about how to position it for all the readers to come, you know? Like, what is the copy going to be on the back of the book or the jacket? It's basically an amended version of my pitch letter to the editor, which I get from the author themselves, or at least pieces of it, in their query letters to me. So yeah, I just like got carried away and I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop um, feeling that urge to help see a book project through, not just selling it, but getting to see what happens on the other side two, three, four, ten years later when the book finally comes out. I'd love to hear a bit about how you work with your clients. I read in an interview with you, I don't know if this is still accurate, but a few years ago, you said that you generally sign about five new clients a year and no more than that. And I think it's important for writers who are out there trying to find an agent. It's really tough to get an agent. There's a lot of rejection involved, but to let them know what it's like on the other side of the desk. So can you tell us why you take on so few projects and what does it really entail for you to work with a writer and to believe in a project enough to sell it? Yeah, it's not because we're just you know, I say no, and that is my power. It's truly that every single book project is so immersive, meaning, you know, a lot of my days are just reading slowly manuscript pages that I've already read 10 times, trying to hone them or advise the writer, working in concert with an editor, you know, how to tell this story better. And so the actual pitching is like the least frequent thing that I do. And so a lot of it is just having that quiet time where I can shut out the world to focus on the work at hand and just really concentrate so that I can write the things that I need to write that I know are really important. But amid all that is just so many meetings, you know, meetings with the um, the editors and the publicists and the marketing people and the writers themselves and running the business side of things and lawyers and contracts. And so all that just like sucks up time. When you've been in the game a long time, you have like 
authors that are at various stages in a new project or in the midst of a, you know, oh my God, there's a shipping crisis or I hate my cover. So there's just almost no time to scout new projects that are totally unsolicited. So at our agency, we have one of our colleagues like goes through all the unsolicited queries that come in through info at our agency or whatever the designated emails are. And then she will call those to make sure that they're going to the right people or just taking like the creme de la creme that has a shot of really being a match for each agent. Then she sends those to us every week, probably a dozen to each person that might come out of a hundred that week. And sometimes I can get to them and sometimes I can't. So I'm always telling writers like, try not to take it personally if you're just getting ghosted left and right. I mean, it's just that busy out there. And it's the same thing for the editors that we're trying to approach. It used to take a couple weeks, we would feel confident that we would know for sure whether or not this book was going to sell in this quarter or not. And now it's just not like that. There's just so much burnout. Uh, A lot of it has to do with the new work culture that's hybrid and all over the place and childcare and social problems. Right now, HarperCollins is on strike. Yeah, the strike. Yeah, and editors are leaving the business. Yeah, I'll try to link to a few resources in the show notes to give people a fuller picture of how tough it is, which isn't to say it's impossible. I always tell writers, of course, you have a chance. Totally. I meet writers all the time who have found their agents through the so-called slush pile. You know, if your work is good and strong, it can and will rise, but it can just take a lot of time and a lot of rejection to get there. Right. (laughs) And I would also say that my agent, she read my book so many times before we went on submission to the point where I felt she deserved a medal. Right. And, you know, for an agent to really devote that time and they don't get any money out of it until they sell your book, which we'll get to that later, but it's so valuable to have an agent with that kind of eye. And you want an agent who has that level of care for your book. You know, I've known writers whose agents work in a different way. And I'm sure agents work completely different ways. I'm not saying one is right or wrong. But if an agent takes your book and just sends it out everywhere all at once without putting that level of care into it, that could, you know, it could set you up to not get a book deal. So it's tough. It's tough. There's a lot of strategy that goes into every single book submission. It's never the same or it shouldn't be for every book. But yes, there are a lot of agents, I'm sure, who are just there to make the deal. And then they pass off their, you know, the paperwork to an in-house attorney or something. But that's not the kind of agent that I am. And that's not the kind of books that I work on. I know you represent a lot of nonfiction with some select fiction. Can you talk about what you represent and also maybe the differences in trying to sell fiction and nonfiction? So the one thing I like to say off the bat is that I don't handle any kids or young adult material, and I wish I did, but it's a whole other world unto itself with different players and different rules, even though they have the same parent companies a lot of the time. But I predominantly represent narrative nonfiction writers, which encompasses like biographies. For me, it's like a lot of biographies of musicians or memoirs by uh, musicians. That's just like a lane that I kind of <laughs> got carried away with. It's my personal brand. But also a memoir and some journalism and stories about the culture and current affairs and pop culture, I guess some humor, a little bit of true crime. I do a lot of books about underrepresented women criminals, for instance, or just like stories that typically haven't been told, you know, in the popular consciousness. So for fiction, I love it. And I I represent a couple of novelists right now, um, Eden Lepucky, who wrote a best-selling novel called California that was her debut like a decade ago and now has her third novel coming out next year, which is a complete departure 
So that'll be interesting. Every fiction writer's novel is is a new test. I represent Lee Stein, who wrote the satirical novel Self Care. It came out last year, or actually now two years ago. But she's a writer whose work I really love, and she works across platforms. Like she's done a memoir and a novel and poetry. So yeah, I think I just really like working with writers who have their finger on the pulse of what is going on right now, even if they're writing about things that happened in the past or looking at history, they're looking at it through, you know, up to the minute lens. In addition to being an agent, you're also an author. So I'm wondering, what was that like for you? You know, when you were selling your memoir, you have your own agent. I don't know if people know this, but literary agents also need their own agents to sell their books. What was it like for you since you're in the business and you know a lot of editors? Did that make much of a difference for you? Was it strange having your work submitted to colleagues? Tell us about that. Oh, my God. Yes. Well, uh, it's kind of a long story. But um, my agent is my boss and colleague and my very first boss, I should say, um, Betsy Lerner, who is also an author of memoirs and had been an editor, I mean, before she was an agent. And so she has really taken me under her wing as a writer as well. And she just kind of encouraged me about 10 years into the job, you know, when are you going to write your memoir? And part of that was because she knew that I was, that I did write for myself and that I was, you know, struggling in my personal life over grief from the death of my father about 10 years previously and how that intersected with or affected my life, like as a young woman dating in New York City. And so the memoir, Don't Let Me Down, was conceived, I guess, like in 2010, but it didn't actually come out until 2019 for many publishing reasons. Number one, the imprint that we ended up selling it to, the free press, went out of business (laughs) and or got absorbed by another parent company. And the short answer is it took me a lot longer to write the book than I thought I would because I had sold it on proposal, which is what we do for nonfiction a lot of the times because editors will want to help you see through the entire arc of the book. And so I felt really confident about putting that proposal together. I had a couple of sample chapters and a strong pitch and a concept. And many editors were very curious to see it. And Two men in particular had been encouraging me to write, and I can't wait for you to send it to me, and it's going to be great, and we're going to, you know, I actually thought a man was going to be my editor. And those were the toughest rejections. Those were like the meaner rejections that I received, just like kind of a baffled response. Because the book is really about like the gender conundrum between fathers and daughters, like a strong-willed daughter standing up to her, you know, the man, not just like the dad, but the culture. And it just rubbed them the wrong way. But of course, it's all very subjective, right? It's interesting because I've read your memoir and of course, there are so many themes about being a woman in the world and the relationship yeah. with men, but it's also so universal, just universal human themes, coming of age, handling grief, family trauma, you know, the connection with your dad and music was really beautiful and sad. And so I don't know, for someone, a male editor to gender it so strongly. I think because they were also fathers themselves and young fathers, like fathers of young daughters at the time, maybe. But who knows? The point is, at first, in the beginning of the process, I was saying to Betsy, my agent, you know, of course, I want to see what so and so wants to say, send me everything. And that was tough. And eventually, you know, I was just like, wake me when it's over. And that helps me to have that conversation with authors in the beginning, too, especially when they've never gone through the process of submission before. It's their debut. I say, how do you take your rejection? 
And I recommend that I send or I share like the more specific and glowing because there are some letters that are so thoughtful and such love letters that you can't believe that they're rejections, but sometimes that's why they're rejections. I mean, we could talk about this all day, but there's a lot of reasons that your book is not going to sell and it has nothing to do with how well it's written, how much merit it has in, you know, society or like literature. It really is about timing, some luck and the marketplace. It, we have to remember the capitalism part. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 100%. That is deeply ingrained, especially if writers want a book deal with a significant or notable amount of money attached to it. You know, capitalism yeah. is right. married to the process. When my book went on submission, this is something I encourage writers to think about because I think there's an impulse that you want to see every rejection from every editor. There's a sense that, oh, my book is actually out with editors at these big publishers, so I want to see everything. I want to know exactly what they say. I think the submission process is so difficult. It's very secretive. You can't really tweet about it or anything, or you shouldn't yeah, if you want to be smart. You shouldn't. But my agent batched them. We talked about it. And I think that's also something to talk about with an agent. Um, she would send me maybe small batches of rejections at certain times. And I remember I was on submission around the time of my birthday. So I told her, this is when my birthday is. Please don't send me a rejection on this day. And she said, of course. And so when my birthday came around and I got an email from her, I knew that that would be good news and not bad news. So that was really good. Great. And then my book sold, which was great. I had few editors who were interested. It went to auction and then it sold and it was all happy. And a part of me wanted to ask her for those final rejections to see what they said. And I had to have a talk with myself and think, okay, your book sold, which is amazing. Do you really need to see more? Who knows what these rejections say? Will they even be helpful? Do you need to see this? Will it actually do you any good? Yeah. So I refrained from asking her for them. So I'm very proud of yep. myself. But I think that's easier said than done sometimes, I think. Yeah. 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 I mean, and now I've seen it happen so much, you know, with Betsy Lerner, who's had multiple books, so has had to go through this process many times. Many people in publishing who are editors or agents are not published editors or agents, right? Like they've tried and failed. Like we have to break bread with the people who reject us every day anyway, whether it's our own writing or just merely something we think is brilliant. And so it is a delicate balance of like, well, <laughs> some editors and agents are married to each other. It's wild. It's, it's <laughs> yeah, like, that is wild to me. <laughs> uh, it's a balance. Well, I'm curious how your experience publishing your memoir, did that change or influence the way you work with your own authors, with your clients? Did it give you any new insight or new things to think about when you're working with authors? And maybe you can also just give us an overview of what that author-agent relationship looks like for you with the authors you work with. I just learned so, so much writing my own book and co-writing or ghostwriting for others because I now realize that the part where you're writing alone in a vacuum is very important. Clearly, it's how it is, but it's not great for your mental health, number one. And you need the support of other writers or other people who know what you're going through, through the process to help you see the bigger picture, to guide you through, to give you prompts, to tell you when it's not working, to tell you to take a break. It's just a long-term project. So the first thing I do is I tell the new writer I'm working with to buckle up and that this is about the long game and that every time you start to hear that like, oh my God, I have to quickly turn this around and make this chapter sing by next Friday or the world will end, that is just not the world of book publishing. We're talking about deep future. You might be in another decade of your life by the time this book is in stores, but that's what you've signed up for if you want to have a book. And it's just, it's slow. So there's that. I am very hands-on in terms of how many rounds of edits I'll do, whether it's the full manuscript of a novel or 
the proposal. And sometimes it's like you start with 100 pages, but you want to, for whatever reason, like carve it down to 50 pages so that there's more like sales push than actual material on the page because maybe some of your partial isn't as strong as the beginning. So there's a lot of finessing that happens there. I tend to do a lot of hand-holding through, you know, breaking down the contract and what that means. And more and more often, I think the word is out about how great it is to work with, if you can afford it, or in as much as you can afford it, editorial help in the form of an independent editor, a book coach, some kind of research assistant, depending on the project, who can be a partner and help you. And since I've been doing this for so long, I now know that some of the boldface name authors we all know and love and win prizes, they are working with co-writers behind the scenes, ghost editors who have nothing to do with the person in the acknowledgments page, writers, authors pay for help. They pay for sometimes their own outside publicity and marketing help. So I think the jig is up when people, they no longer believe the fantasy that, you know, you'll be discovered from the slush pile and then it's photo shoots and tours or something. It's not any of that. It's more like you have designated helpers who can pay for your postage for two weeks out of the year. It's a lot. So I try to not leave the writer alone or at sea and just answer all the questions as I go. And that's why I can't take on so many new clients all the time because there's just no way to make a living doing that while putting all of the effort that I tend to put in. I don't know any other way to do it, unfortunately. Before we get to our query letters, let's quickly talk about your podcast. Tell me about your father. Oh, yeah. I love this podcast. I've been listening to it. But can you share with our listeners the premise of this podcast and what you do? Yes. Thank you. This podcast, oh, I wish I'd thought of it before, but it was really because it came out of um, Don't Let Me Down came out in 2019. I was totally terrified. I didn't know how to think of myself as a writer and therefore the person promoting the book being the one being like, you need to buy this book. This sad story will change your life. And I was still struggling when I was out there giving readings and things like internally, who is this book for? Who will this connect with as much as it does for me and, and other sad girls who've lost their dads in their 20s? And I realized like at my book launch, I had other people with interesting dad stories to do a moth-like, um, like a storytelling series where it combined like my storytelling with other people's storytelling to show how universal these experiences are being a child of a complicated man or a man they didn't know. And Freud's always talking about, you know, tell me about your mother. And I was like, what if people would tell us about their fathers? So I partnered with two of my uh, media friends who also have complicated dad stories, Matthew Philp and Elizabeth Thompson. During the pandemic, when I was supposed to be going on, you know, a publicity tour for the paperback. So instead, we just started... Um, talking to other people about their fathers, both famous people, other authors that we know, but also just like we'd hear weird stories. So-and-so knows somebody whose father was in the CIA and she went along and became a CIA operative working undercover with her dad. And so just talking to different people and it's I think of every episode as kind of its own little memoir, and I get sharper and sharper when I'm preparing for these interviews and then writing the copy for our newsletter that describes, you know, the themes behind each episode and titling it. So I love podcasts. 
I didn't, when I started, I had never been on a podcast until I started doing publicity for Don't Let Me Down. But once I did, I really got it. I got the bug of, you know, why it's good for people, why it's good for books. It's a great way to have a conversation instead of going to a reading, which can often make you leave your body, right? Like <laughs> listening to a writer in that bookstore setting, we all know that that's been replaced more often by having a Q&A because people really do want to hear what's it all about and then do their reading in private. Yeah, I agree with that. I feel the same way. I also love in your podcast, you have special episodes called Daddy Issues, Yeah, where you and your guests take a deep dive into unresolved daddy issues in pop culture. You did an episode recently about the royal family, yes, which I thought was really interesting. And also, by the way, I was reading your memoir and listening to your interview with Molly Shannon around the same time. Yes. So this is when Molly Shannon came to Cleveland just last April, I think. Right. Really great interview with her about her father, but also more generally. And I think... I think you should know that because I was listening to that and reading your memoir around the same time, oh certain details were getting mixed up because, you know, she tells her famous story of hopping a plane to New York when she's 12. Yes. She's dressed in her ballet clothes and you took ballet when you were young. <laughs> and so for a split second, I'd have to think, wait, did Erin hop a plane with her friend? No, no, no. That was Molly Shannon. So just know that in my mind, you and Molly Shannon are the same person, which is a compliment. Thank you. That's so cool. Yeah. Another Shaker Heights, you know, she. there's so many writers from Shaker Heights. I talked to Katherine Schultz. Yeah, that's a recent episode. Yes. So I'll link yes. to those episodes in the show notes. Great. All right. Well, let's move on to our query review. Last summer, the Ohio Center for the Book put out a call for submissions, including query letters, from writers in Ohio. I received some queries, which are actual query letters from actual Ohio writers working on books, and Erin is generous enough to offer some feedback today on these queries. So I just want to point out that, of course, all the writers have given us permission to use their letters and to read them on the podcast and critique them. And we just want to thank these writers right up top because this is so, so helpful to others. It's also just really brave to put your words out there. I really appreciate it. Totally. Same. So I will read the first query letter and then we'll discuss. Query letter number one. Dear Agent, when I was 29, I moved to Seoul, South Korea with my partner to teach English at Chungdum Institute. In my memoir, Worth Her Salt, I describe the educational landscape of South Korea, which is so competitive compared to the one I was accustomed to in the United States, where I taught for several years at universities in West Virginia and Missouri. In Seoul, I would see my students step out of a Mercedes to go to school. It was also not uncommon to hear about students climbing up to the rooftops of their schools at night and jumping to their deaths. There is a reason why I only taught there for a year. Two of my favorite memoirs are Without You, There Is No Us by Suki Kim and You'll Grow Out of It by Jesse Klein. While my time in South Korea was often emotionally paralyzing, it was also beautiful, awkward, uplifting, and hilarious. One day before class, I sat at my desk eating carrots dipped in ranch dressing. When I looked up at my students, I saw their faces frozen in quiet horror. When I asked what was wrong, one girl asked why I was eating glue. They had never seen ranch dressing before. My essays have appeared in numerous publications, including The Sun, Modern Farmer, and This Land Press. My essay, Guns and Country, was chosen for Best of the Net, and my essay, Silent Heart, won the prose contest for Northeast Ohio writers sponsored by Gordon Square Review. I was a parent fellow for the Martha Vineyards Institute of Creative Writing and a finalist for the Key West Literary Seminar Emerging Writer Awards. Before I stopped teaching to be a stay-at-home mom, I taught English online to students who are incarcerated. I have 12 years of teaching experience in various arenas around the world. Children in South Korea spend almost all day going to school, but there's more to their lives than that. There is more to everyone than their main title. I feel this now heavily as a stay-at-home mom who grew up in a farm in Ohio. We work hard to define ourselves and move beyond a stereotype. I worked hard at this memoir because I wanted to write a book that is honest and aware. I discuss education, but I go beyond that to talk about how we got to where we are in life. The most privileged students in South Korea were the ones who got to go to the best schools, but were they happy? If we ask the same questions about Americans, what is the answer? Thank you for your time and consideration. I am attaching the first page of my essay, Cupcake, which was originally published in The Puritan. 
I can send you a copy of the manuscript worth her salt by email or regular mail. I hope to hear from you soon. Sincerely, name redacted. Okay, Erin, I'll let you take it away with your opening thoughts. So number one, off the end of that with like what I'm attaching, don't attach something that isn't what you're pitching and don't attach all of the thing that you're pitching, like the whole manuscript. She was right to say, you know, I'm looking forward to talking about seeing more, but, you know, typically attach the first 10 pages or just a sample of your strongest writing within the piece, number one. When we're going into the letter, I'm immediately intrigued by the connection of wealth and pressure at school and teenage suicide. And in that first paragraph, I'm like, oh, I wonder if this is going to be some kind of investigation or a mystery will be uncovered because those are very provocative things to put in the first paragraph, which you should always open with because I'm skimming, I'm skimming. But then it's like, I'm not seeing uh, the connection because it does say that she's only been there for one year. She teaches one year, which seems like not enough time to immerse yourself in a culture or a subject, really, for a book at all. I didn't see any plot points raised in the query letter throughout, like there's no setting of where the action will take place, like what the arc or beginning, middle, end will at least like be building toward. So there really needs to be a takeaway. Like I wouldn't use the adjectives. She says she wants her book to be honest and aware. That's implicit. You need to be honest and there has to be awareness and self-awareness if a book is ever going to be published. But you don't want to, you know, use your precious adjectives and don't take away from your pitch for a broad question. Yeah, exactly. And when I look at the letter on the page, it's very long. Um, Mm -hmm. And that line you referenced about wanting to write a book that is honest and aware, I mean, the whole line can just go because we don't actually need to know the impulse behind writing the book and what you want to accomplish. So I think a lot of trimming and an organization would help. Stay-at-home mom is mentioned twice in the letter, which if you're going to mention that for any reason, once is enough. And it's, it's such a strong and upsetting image of these students committing suicide because of the pressure and that phrase jumping to their deaths that echoed with me throughout the query. And so when I got to the next paragraph with the detail about eating ranch dressing, it was hard to know how to put that in place, right? Because it's hard yeah. to focus on the ranch dressing or the hilarious moments when I heard about something so dark. Yeah. So yes, I agree. I had the same questions of what is the overarching, the arc of this book? Right. Is it like, are Korean students that come from rich families as unhappy as American students who don't come from rich families? And so that's not enough. But this whole letter made me think of a guest on my podcast who I hope is going to write a book named Young Me Mayer who is Korean-American and has a podcast called Feeling Asian, which is talking to other Asian people about growing up in their respective Asian society. Like no matter which one, it all is about like a tendency to repress feelings or, you know, be less like American <laughs> and Western with all of our complaining. Um, and then she has a spinoff podcast, though, called uh, Harry Butthole, which is a saying in Korea, if you laugh while crying, hair will grow out of your butthole. So each week, Young Me is joined by a guest with a sad story, and then she counters it with a funny one. So it's kind of like addressing these themes like here's a dark thing that happened to me that I never talk about and I'm going to cry about it on the show and let it all out and then I'm going to tell you about how it made me a funnier person. So the reason why only young me can do that is because she is Korean herself. She has a Korean mother but she also has a white father who she calls racist and misogynist. And her parents are still married. 
So she's who I hope will write a memoir about the conflict between American culture and Korean culture, because she's from both. So I think also, if you're writing about a different culture outside of the US, and you are from the US, you need to stay in your lane. So if this writer is a white woman, give that a think, because it won't work, because then it becomes that like, navel gazy, you know, I'm out of my comfort zone, and I'm going to tell other people how to live. Yeah, yeah. Without maybe definitively knowing this writer's identity, in general, if you were to get a query letter where you feel, based on the writer's identity, they need to stay in their lane, so to speak, where should they go from here? If they had been working on a project like this, what is their next best step? Well, I would just ask yourself, like, why this subject? What am I really trying to say? Because if I were peeling it back, it sounds like she wants to talk about class, like wealth. Yeah, yeah, which I'm really fascinated by. I'm so fascinated by books about class and capitalism. And I've been so irritated by how hard they are to sell. You know, there's that book, Stephanie Land, called Made like M-A-I-D or Nickel and Dimed by Barbara Ironrake 20-some years ago, still such an important book. But recently, when I've been trying to sell something about capitalism to a mainstream publisher, the editor would say to me, Erin, like, this is like a book for activists. It's kind of anti-capitalist. Are you really going to think like we're going to publish a book and try to promote it for somebody to sell for $30. And you're saying like, we're the bad guy for that. You know, it's just, it's tricky. You have to really think through all of the angles. But I would also say for something where you're just not nailing it in book length, write an essay, you know, come up with a proof of concept. And also, I would like to point out that this writer has some really excellent credits, which is always good. It is clearly a person who's been working hard on their writing, which is always fantastic to see. And I think I would tell this writer as well, that if you do have to reexamine the angle of your book, or of your topic, you know, and some of our comments just wondering about the arc of the book itself, I think that is so normal. It is standard right. to have to step back and reevaluate your angle, how we you're approaching your subject it. matter or anything like that. Yes. This is just the process. So I would say definitely don't be discouraged by that. We all do it. We're all doing it constantly for years sometimes. But yeah. No, I think that's good. It's a great one to start with because I feel like we got a lot out of the way. Query number two. Dear agent. Fraternal Tears is an 82,500-word young adult novel about a fraternal sister who seeks answers about the disappearance of her fraternal brother with the help of her surfing friends. Similar titles are Skull Crack by Ben Bow, Second Star by Alyssa Scheinmel, and Ruby Holler by Sharon Creech. Fraternal Tears is filled with teenage drama, romance, reincarnation, and paranormal events. Haley and Hunter are fraternal twins and best friends. Based in the 1980s, Haley and Hunter and their friends are known as the suicidal surfers in the coastal community of Tall Ships, Rhode Island. When Hunter goes missing at college, Haley's life becomes a nightmare until she opened her eyes one morning at home and sees Hunter standing over her. Her friends and family think she's crazy for stating that she sees Hunter. Haley discovers Hunter returned to help her to decide which high school sweetheart to marry, wild and cocky Seth or calm and cool Joe. I am a librarian at Redacted, and I previously worked in the young adult apartment at a medium-sized library for four years, ordering and reading young adult novels. My love for the ocean led me to write Fraternal Tears. I was honored Fraternal Tears was chosen as one of many semifinalists in the 2018 Eludia Award, a first book-length unpublished novel contest. In 2009, I paid a literary agency $5,000 to revise Fraternal Tears. They never found a publisher, so I relinquished them in 2013. Per this agency, it was one of our favorite projects, and we're surprised we haven't had any luck placing it for you. I entered Fraternal Tears on Swoon Reads in 2016 and received favorable ratings and reviews. Go Media designed the book cover with my input. Thank you for your time and consideration. Best regards, Redacted. Mm. 
Well, I hate that she got taken for a ride because you definitely don't want to put anything about your previous track record being rejected in your query letter, just in general. You know, I I hope everybody's heard the wisdom about, you know, literary agents don't get paid by writers until we get paid through the publishers or the film production companies, and then we pay the author after we make the money. Now, there's a lot of book packaging companies. There's like things called like curated self-publishing or hybrid publishers. But in this case, I would just take that loss and not mention it. I love the fact that they are a librarian. That goes for a lot, Um, especially because since I don't know anything really about the YA middle grade kids world, I would think that she would. And so she's the expert there. I wouldn't open with my 82,500 word. That's just like filler to me. Like it also sounds a little long, but maybe it isn't, you know, for young adult. I also couldn't tell. This is where I get tripped up with young adult material because as I understand it, kids read aspirationally, like they read above their grade level. An 11-year-old wants to hear about a high school romance, but a 20-year-old does not want to hear about a high school romance because now they're on to, you know, adult fiction that isn't even called YA anymore. So I would work on that. And with the competitive titles, with those comps, I would also, I'm assuming because they're a librarian, then they know that these should be very recent comps. And I would list like, you know, Candlewick or whoever put out those particular books just to show how tuned in to the market the the writer is. I don't know about suicidal surfers or if it's giving me enough and that's just my take. But I think she can be a little bit more conversational, I think, about the plot. Yeah, yeah, I had questions about the plot. Because on one hand, it seems like a ghost story. But then with that line, Hunter is standing over her bed, that struck me as a bit ominous. But I don't think it was meant to be. And then I was surprised when it actually seemed to be a love triangle, where she's trying to pick between two different people to marry. I was just curious, like, what is the real heart of the story here? Yeah, and it's called Fraternal Tears. And it doesn't say that they're twins, you know what I mean? But it says that she uses the word fraternal a couple times. I, I think it does. In the second paragraph, it says they're twins, but the word fraternal is used so often before that, that I think it gets mm-hmm. muddled a bit and it might not be necessary to use Take it. Take it out. Well, but because they're brother and sister. Yeah. I don't like the title fraternal tears. I think that's what I'm getting at. I yeah. think that's that's not a title that says anything to me. Yeah. Yeah, it's abstract. And it doesn't seem like a YA. Well, I have a question for you. So I'm not familiar with Swoon Reads. I looked it up and it seems to be an online community where you can post your work and people will comment on it. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering what advice you would give to authors in terms of doing that. Are there certain limitations? You know, obviously you don't want to publish your work, but these communities don't always count as publishing. So I guess I'm wondering where the line is in Mm. terms of sharing your entire book online. Um, There was also the mention of the book cover design that made me question, oh, is this self-published or not? If there was a cover design. Yeah, I would, um, it's just, there's so many apparently uh, places. I think that I would go to Poets and Writers or Publishers Marketplace, which we always talk about in the biz and just click around, do some research. I Google all the time. Like if I haven't heard of a press, because there's so many millions of them and micros and smalls and universities and, and whatever, just do your research and look around. And if it looks too good to be true, there are a lot of companies out there who are selling And I'm a fan of self-publishing, and I think that it can be done really well. But if you don't do a lot of research first, it can be disastrous because you end up buying, you know, yourself 500 books and nowhere to put them. 
(laughs) (laughs) Right, exactly. Uh, I think that's also just a good reminder that agents are Googling people. Oh, yeah. They're Googling small presses. I mean, I do that, and I'm not an agent or an editor, but I do it through my work when I haven't heard of a press or a contest or something. I'll do a little digging just so I understand what it is. So it's it's good to be aware of that, writers, that professionals are Googling what you put in a query letter, sometimes anyway. Okay, so our last query letter is a little bit different. And I think this is a good sign of what it's like to be in publishing or to be an author in the industry is that publishing, as you said, Aaron, is super slow. So from the time that I asked for these queries and received them until I was ready to set up this interview with you and contact the writers and ask for their permission, months had passed. So this writer had already revised her query based on other feedback in that time. So we're actually going to do a quick before and after based on the original query she sent me and then the revision that she sent closer to this podcast airing. So first, I'll read the original query as it was submitted. Query number three, before. Dear Ms. Agent, I saw on Duotrope that you are open to suspense and literary fiction, which led me to your agency's website. Given your interest, I hope you will consider Where Willows Take Root, complete at 92,000 words. An excerpt from this work was featured in Best Short Stories from the Saturday Evening Post Great American Fiction 2021, which garnered a personal note from Jody Pico. In Where Willows Take Root, a coming-of-age story set in 1965, Kat must grow up fast to outwit her stepfather when he commits her mother to Athens' insane asylum as a means to sell off her 300 acres through power of attorney and pay off his mounting debts to the Cleveland Mayfield Mafia. Like her daughter, Helen leans on her wits. Still, her struggle to earn the trust of the asylum staff and prove her sanity may drive her even deeper into its grips as solitary confinement and shock treatment therapy are lorded over those who speak out. Together, mother and daughter echo one another, circle each other, separated and desperate for reunion, both striving for the chance at a new life the world may not give them. Mary Jane Holmes, Fish Publishing Editor, worked with me to rewrite the story, and Caroline Levitt, New York Times bestselling novelist, worked with me to polish it. Where Willows Take Root has the edginess of Kate Quinn's The Alice Network, the tension of Faulkner's Light in August, and the darkness of Willa Cather's Paul's Case, and will resonate with fans of Nadine Gordimer and Amy Tan. I studied creative writing at Baldwin Wallace College and Cleveland State University. My short stories have been finalists for Perigee Publication for the Arts, the Fish Short Story Prize, and a Glimmer Train Press Honorable Mention. My thriller Anonymous, Laconial Select 2014, won the Eric Hoffer Book Award and was a finalist for Next Generation Indie Book Award and Reader's Favorite Book Award. Anonymous has sold over 5,000 copies. The first two chapters are in the message. I look forward to hearing from you. Sincerely, author name redacted. Okay, Erin, would you like to offer a few initial comments on this original query letter? I would not mention Faulkner. I would not mention 5,000 copies sold, whether it was self-published. It's just like how I'm not going to tell you that, you know, X episode only got, you know, 600 unique downloads, you know, like publishers, all publishers need to believe or tell themselves that your book can sell about 35,000 copies in general, just so they don't feel like they are losing money on every single book that they do. They do lose money on most books because, you know, only 1% of all books even sell more than 5,000 copies. So I understand why she wanted to put that in there, but just take it out. I don't know too much about self-publishing, but I feel I've seen advice over the years that agents will only be interested if there's a magic number, basically either 2,000 or 5,000 copies that tells them something about the self-published book. But I think it's so useful to hear from you that agents actually maybe don't want that number put in regardless. And, yeah. you know, if it sold hundreds of thousands of copies, then it would be a different story for other reasons than just the number. Here's the thing. They can find you. Once your book is self-published and it is moving on Amazon, which is truly the only way that self-published books get there, that algorithm kicks in. If it's on Amazon, it alerts 
all of these, maybe they're not editors, but like nerds at publishing houses, spies are constantly looking at data. And that data will reveal in those algorithm categories, like, you know, best blah, blah, blah books. I can tell you that I have worked with somebody that had self-published in the past. And the publisher reached out to them because she could see, the publisher could see that this self-published author was selling about, I think it was like 4,000 books a month. And that is a lot. And so, you know, then they took over that same book under their own license and then signed up two more. So that's how that works. By the way, that author would have made more money in the short term, self-publishing. But they wanted that opportunity, as we all do, for the major distribution and possible translation, yada, yada, yada. Yeah, and not having to do all the editing and proofing yourself and have a team behind you. Yeah. Well, looking at the plot of this quickly on the before version, it definitely seems like a lot is happening in the book. It's not quiet. But I think one of my questions was, is it dual point of view? Because... Cat, the daughter is mentioned, and then Helen. And also, I, I kind of balked at the term insane asylum. But yes. this was set in 1965. So maybe that's what it would be called back then. Is it because... But it's jarring. It was, it was jarring for me. I love a state hospital narrative. But I wonder that even in 1965, which was the one thing that really stood out to me about this query. So it's important that you said that. Insane Asylum feels almost satirical. Like, I think in the UK, they would call it something like that for the criminally insane or something. But I couldn't tell that was made up. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know. Now I I want to look it up to see if that was the term being used back then. But I guess either way, it's important to think about these things. So even if what you're writing is correct for the time, thinking about how to frame it in a query can be important. Um, But maybe we'll see that in the revision. Right. So yeah, there's a lot of other author names mentioned, either authors who worked with this writer, you know, and I'm glad you mentioned Faulkner and Willa Cather. Yes, Cather. It's really hard to compare yourself, first of all, to authors who are considered greats, but also, mm-hmm. you know, Faulkner, The Light in August was published almost a century ago. That's right. So it's just not relevant, even if her book does have the same tone. Yeah, every single editor will tell you that when it comes to comps, it's just because those guys are dead, you know, and it was a 100 years ago, like people want to know about today's problems, even if they are reading an historical story. It just has to touch on those themes. Do you have a time frame in mind that you prefer for comps, like books that were published in the last three to five years? I love the way that she handled that comp paragraph, even in the first go, because she's saying it's for readers of or readers who liked this book might be drawn to this for these reasons. I still love to do that. And I also still love to like reference movies and stories in the news. But when it comes down to it, editors say it needs to be in the last two or three years because they are going after a very specific profit and loss report that they have to put together. So crying in H Mart, you know, sold this many copies versus this grief memoir, blah, 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 and make an average out of it. So I just always say, even if you haven't read the books, you must be aware of what is working in your lane, in your category. Look at the New York Times bestseller list, just scan it, notice the books that aren't obvious. Like, obviously, Michelle Obama's memoir is number one on the nonfiction list. Who is the non celebrity that has a memoir on that list? You know, make a spreadsheet. Writers love spreadsheets. (laughs) We do. (laughs) We really do. (laughs) Okay, well, let's turn to the revised version of this query. Query number three, after. Dear Agent, I saw on Manuscript Wishlist that you are open to queries. Given your interest in literary fiction, I'm hoping that you'll consider Where the Willows Take Root, complete at 92,000 words. Kat's alcoholic grandfather is her only ally when her mother falls ill, and her ill-tempered stepfather alerts children's services. That is, until she comes up against a stranger she meets on the highway. In Kat's quest to unite her family, she learns to trust the stranger, a returning Vietnam soldier, 
who keeps a secret between them, along with some of his own. An excerpt of this 1965 coming-of-age story was featured in Best Short Stories from the Saturday Evening Post Great American Fiction 2021, and another excerpt was a Glimmer Train Press honorable mention. Where the Willows Take Root blends the edginess of Kate Quinn's The Alice Network, the tension of Faulkner's Light in August, and the darkness of Willa Cather's Paul's Case, and will resonate with fans of Jane Smiley and Amy Tan. I studied creative writing at Cleveland State University and Baldwin Wallace College and have worked with New York Times bestselling authors Karen Joy Fowler and Carolyn Levitt. One of my short stories was a finalist for the Perigee Publication for the Arts, and three other short stories were finalists for the Fish Short Story Prize. My thriller Anonymous, Laconial Select 2014, won the Eric Hoffer Book Award and was a finalist for both the Next Generation Indie Book Award and the Reader's Favorite Book Award. I would love to work with you. Truly, author name redacted. Okay, Erin, what do you think about this revision? It's good. I like that she ends on the accolades. That's very strong. I got more of a sense of the plot, I guess, this time. And I like that it's shorter. The less words, the better. I'd even dispense with like, you know, I read on Publishers Marketplace or Manuscript Wishlist because just launch into like, maybe it's a question, maybe it's the essential tension of the book. I just want to get to that plot line quicker. Instead of saying this 1965 coming of age story, I'd write a coming of age story set entirely in 1965. Because I'm wondering, what is it about the year 1965? Is that the container of the book for a reason? And I think she mentions Vietnam or Vietnam vet. So in my mind, I went right to like Dennis Johnson's Tree of Life or whatever, like because I'm I haven't heard of a Vietnam book in a long time. So I'm just trying to think about like, okay, okay, how does this fit? How does this fit? Or what is this saying to me? And then I think the word alcoholic father might have been in there. Uh, Alcoholic grandfather. Grandfather. Okay. So that's me. Maybe. So, but that's not enough. Like I want a little more. And so with this query, I think she should definitely paste below if that's allowed for who she's querying, like the first 10 pages or the first chapter. So I could get a sense of the voice. Sometimes it's okay to put the first few sentences of the book if they're really great right there as your opener in the query letter. You know, because sometimes you open a book and it's just like, yeah, yeah. Let's see. Like, I'm just opening up Hysterical by Alyssa Bassist, 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 um, which is a new release. It's got a great blurb by Roxane Gay on the cover. And the first two lines are, you don't have a brain tumor, the first neurologist said. You know, that's a great way to open any letter because it tells you, oh, the neurologist. Oh, the first neurologist. So then you're already like uncovering the mystery or you want to know more. And that's really the trick of it. And I know it's so it's brain numbing because you don't want to say the wrong thing right off the bat. You know, queries are so difficult. And this writer has clearly been revising and working at it and I don't know any writer who hasn't revised their query 8, 10, 20 times, right? right? This is part of the process. And I think the writer did a good job. of They did a lot of good in this revision. I do think it's hard because we did see two versions. So we're carrying forward the plot elements we saw in version one, which other agents won't. They'll have just one version. And I did think in this one, the plot information, as you're suggesting, is really thin. So the mother isn't mentioned at all, which I still have that question in my mind. Is it dual point of view? How big of a role does the mother play? And things like she comes up against a stranger, but I don't know what really happens or the stranger's secrets. And I know in a query letter, it can be challenging where you don't want to give it all away. But you do have to give enough details to entice us, I think. Yeah, yeah, you definitely do. And it's okay to give it all away actually to the agent, you know, you'd want to create some suspense for the editor, but let the agent worry about that part. But yeah, when you're pitching to the agent, it's kind of okay to say like, here's how the book's going to end, 
you know, you don't have to say it in your first query letter, but it's something that you should have an idea of when you are writing the query letter and approaching an agent. Like, oh, I know how to answer the question of what comes next. You know, a lot of people, they start to reach out to agents when they have like a really nice chunk of polished writing or an essay or This American Life or something that has given them that immediate feedback that people are connecting with this. But is it a book? Can you sustain it? Can you sustain a narrative over 250, 300 pages and tell a bigger story than just your own story. Because a book has to transcend your experience to say something larger about our culture and our times and all of us in a kind of universal way, even as it is specific to your experience. That was perfect. And that was also really fantastic, high-level advice to help us step back and, and look at a query in the book process from a larger level. Which makes me think of that expression, the forest for the trees, which makes me think of Betsy Lerner's fantastic book, The Forest for the Trees, which I will link to. So good. I tend to be someone who zeroes in too much, almost to a fault. But on one really minor nitpicky level here in the second paragraph, the mother falls ill and her ill-tempered stepfather. So those two ills right next to each other. And I I don't know, maybe the author was trying to create an echo on purpose, but this is such a tiny thing and I wouldn't normally be so nitpicky. But Erin, as you mentioned, when you're reading queries, you're busy, you're skimming, and there are just all these little details that can add up to an impression as an agent is quickly reading. So it's good to just read your query out loud and really sit with it. Yeah. And truly thesaurus.com. I am constantly using it just because I'm writing quickly. I have to write these things quickly and I will not remember the adjective that is different than the one that I just used. But it is so important not to double up on that stuff. You know, it's weird, but true. We should start to wrap up because we've gone over our time. But I'm so appreciative of you being here and sharing your insights and your expertise. I am going to encourage all of our listeners to read Aaron's memoir, Don't Let Me Down, and listen to the fantastic podcast, Tell Me About Your Father. But before we go, do you have any final parting words you'd like to offer to writers listening who might be trying to find an agent? Any last bit of advice or encouragement for them? Yeah, I just, just keep reading, keep reading what's new, keep talking to your community about the books you're reading, and don't feel like it has to be a book. There are other ways that you can make an impact with your writing. And sometimes a shorter form is the best form and is just as challenging in its own way, but can lead to other things. I've been really getting into Belt magazine, you know, like learning about the regional treasure we have here. They also have a publishing imprint. I don't know, just like don't give up. Don't get discouraged. Keep writing and get yourself a writing group or partner, somebody to help keep you accountable and to keep you encouraged. Excellent advice. Erin, thank you so much for being here with us today. It's been a delight. Thanks so much. Page Count is presented by the Ohio Center for the Book at Cleveland Public Library. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and leave a review for Page Count wherever you get your podcasts. Learn more online or find a transcript of this episode at ohiocenterforthebook.org. Follow us on Twitter at CPLOCFB or find us on Facebook. If you'd like to get in touch, email ohiocenterforthebook at cpl.org and put podcast in the subject line. Finally, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Lauren Aileen. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in two weeks for another chapter of Page Count.